You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 26 of our show, where we discuss the latest news about Apple, iPhone, iPad, Mac, and more. We're recording on Thursday, July 23rd, 2015. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and with me today are Neil Hughes, Managing Editor of Apple Insider. Hey, Neil. Hey, guys. How's it going? Fantastic. And Mikey. Hey, guys. What's up? Yo. Right. So I want to tell you, our listeners, just a moment about Videoblocks. Videoblocks is an affordable subscription-based stock media site that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. You get great value with the unlimited download model, access to a library of over 100,000 HD clips, After Effects templates, and motion backgrounds, over 250,000 graphics. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year, and it's the same content that you would find on much more expensive stock sites. There's a great variety of time-lapse aerials, both U.S. and international locations, slow motion and nature shots, and more, and they're continuously adding new content to the library so that it stays fresh. Everything is 100% royalty-free with unrestricted usage rights for personal or commercial projects. You get to keep what you download and maintain usage rights forever. Want to know more? Go to videoblocks.com slash promo slash insider and sign up for your own subscription today. Now, in the news, the news, we had the Apple earnings call. This was pretty huge, and there were a lot of people talking about it. There were people talking about how many watches were sold, how many uh, iPads were sold, what the trends were, how much was spent on R&D. There was a lot to cover in this earnings call. Neil, what do you think is the point that people should take away from this huge earnings call? <laughs> Let me just jump right in and nail you yeah, with that. No, no, don't, tell, don't no. get me started. Uh, <laughs> all right, here's what you need to know about the earnings call. Um, Wall Street is insane. Apple is the largest company on the planet. They grew their revenue by 33%. L- let, me, let me restate that. The largest company on the planet grew their revenue by 33%. They, <laughs> I mean, it's just like it's insane how much they keep growing, and it means, it, it means nothing to Wall Street because they have their idea of what they think the sales should be and where everything should be at. So Apple sold 47.5 million iPhones in their quarter. It was a record, but that wasn't enough for Wall Street because they expected it to be closer to 50 million in, in some cases, like uh, uh, Ming-Chi Kuo of uh, KGI Securities. I think he had 54 million, was it at, Mikey? I'm checking that right now. I think it was, I think it was around there, though, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the expectations were too high. Uh, the report came out. Apple had a record quarter. Investors don't care. And the stock tanks and drops, you know, like seven percent the next day, uh, because because of what? Because of some arbitrary made-up numbers that idiots on Wall Street came up with. You know, well, that, it's just. Yeah. Let me let I me mean, stop you there and ask a question. Apple yeah. gives guidance, right? Apple gives earning guidance. They say that they expect revenue to be within this and this, and they give a, an upper and lower, right? right? Well, it's traditionally right. low. Yes. Well, they used to underestimate their guidance. So what happened was, uh, you know, three years ago or whatever, they used to grossly underestimate their guidance. It was like a running joke on Wall Street. And then uh, a few years ago, they changed how they report their guidance. And so now they give realistic guidance. And they're always within their guidance. It's accurate. But Wall Street doesn't care about that kind of stuff. You know, it's a it's a it's a game show over there, essentially. And people are throwing uh, uh, darts at a board and they're picking numbers and saying, oh, this is where the iPhone sales are going to be. So even when they come in with this huge growth, it's not what they're expecting in the stock tanks. It's, it's, it's just silly. It's beyond stupid. 
what I was looking at was I, I was looking at the guidance and I was looking and seeing that they're still coming in above their their upper mark on their guidance. Yeah, but, they did this time. Sometimes they fall within it, but but not by much, right? It's it's not right. a drastic number. It's not it, it's it's not you know millions and millions and millions upon millions of dollars above. It's it's a small amount above. They're they're clearly being much more accurate between what yeah. they're estimating and what they're reporting. Yeah, they've been doing that for a few years now. So when Wall Street gets fussy and decides that this is not right and tanks the stock, that for me, and personally, and I'm not giving stock advice to any of our listeners, but for me, that's a sign, go and buy. Right? Right. I mean, uh, disclose, I don't own any Apple stock. I don't own any technology company stock. Um, I write about it for a living, and so I don't invest in it because that would be unethical of me. But anyhow... Um, you know, just looking at it objectively as someone who, you know, has no financial gain from Apple's earnings, uh, this is a company with over $200 billion in cash. I mean, think about that, right? You, you look at some of these companies and, and what their values are and, and, uh, and, you know, in relation to how much they, they make. You know, Apple is just is making cash. <laughs> I mean, they're like rolling in it right now. Uh, they had net profit of $10.7 billion in this quarter. That was up from $7.4 billion a year ago. Their, their main product, the iPhone 6, is almost a year old, and they still sold 47.5 million iPhones in a three-month span. I mean, the numbers are astronomical. They're, they're, they're incredible. They're way up there. But Wall Street is a game, and that's why the stock tanks. It has no real reflection on the health of the company. You know, it has nothing to do with how profitable they are, how successful they are, um, how how well they're doing. It's nothing about that. And people, you know, they, they look at, oh, maybe the iPhone 6S that's coming out isn't going to be as in demand because it's expected to have the same appearance and stuff like that. Oh, iPad sales are down, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is the very definition of a healthy company. <laughs> they're, they're selling stuff with 40% margins. They're raking in cash. There's absolutely no reason for the stock to tank, but welcome to Wall Street. Mikey, Apple. Are they still doomed? Well, I mean, they're always doomed, but uh, it's kind of what makes it interesting, right? I mean, I'm sure these investors and hedge fund people have their they they have their reasons, and I'm I'm sure their macroeconomics and all kinds of uh, studies are are way over my head. But um, I guess that the only thing that I can think of that they're thinking is that there's a there's a slowdown, I guess, in in uh, in iPad, and you know they they kind of they're kind of hesitant about Apple Watch, and they're seeing they're seeing some other um, outside factors that Apple has no control over um, as far as consumer uh, direction is concerned, and and uh, you know I guess every earnings call they just get the kind of cold feet and and bail on it, whereas you know it, it'll correct itself in a in a couple of days, it's already starting to. I mean, this happens what every three months. So really, it's not it's not anything new, right? And it's, one of all, the- it's all about growth. That's what it is. That's all they care about. It, it, are you growing? And I mean, then you look at Apple, and it's like thirty three percent growth in revenue. Yeah, yeah, they're growing all right. You know, they're doing except pretty they, well. Except they didn't grow as much as right. last and quarter. Right, and they may and they may not grow as much next quarter because and it's like oh my goodness you know it's just it's it's out of control right well what we're talking about is people looking at a very short term and 
what you and I talk about, right? What all three of us think about is a much longer term, right? We talk about. Well, they're looking at longer term too. It's all BS numbers, though. Like, I'll, I'll get these analyst reports that come in, and they're projecting what iPhone sales are going to be in 2018. I mean, come on, seriously. <laughs> you know, like we have no idea what the market trends are going to be. We have no idea what the phone is going to look like. You know, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous that they make projections as far out, but this is what they do. This is. This is the game they're in. That's like my it's favorite hard. line from The Simpsons. You know, it was Disco Stu saying, "Disco sales for the year 1975 were up 500 percent. If that trend continues, hey, <laughs> it's well, it's fake numbers built on fake numbers built on fake numbers. And if you extrapolate all this fuzzy math, it's just built on nothing. Well, it's, it's really hard for tech, um, you know, tech investor or tech analysts to actually, you know, analyze. Uh, an industry that is inherently changing literally every day. So um, I guess, they, I mean, they, they do what they can. And when, when I see their reports and I see their, their forecasts, it's, it's such a huge spread on the, uh, from, the, um, from the highs and lows and, you know, whether the stock is overweight or not. It's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, I, I see why they have jobs, but then again, it's kind of like some of this stuff, it's it's ethereal. You can't really you, you can't put your finger on it, and I don't know. It, just listening to their questions at the call, right? It was it was kind of uh, it's kind of humorous, especially Gene Munster. I, I don't know how you can take this stuff seriously if you look back like five years ago. IDC, you know these companies that people invest based on this stuff, and companies like IDC were making projections that uh, Nokia's Symbian was going to maintain like ninety percent control of the smartphone market. And, it, and like I remember they were saying that Windows Phone, uh, when it was announced, was going to overtake uh, iOS and things like this. I remember that. And and it's just like, do they? I think they just like think that momentum or this or that or just you know through sheer will, maybe Microsoft was going to do something. I don't know. But you look at these things and it's like, I don't know how anybody could have, in good faith, made that recommendation with a straight face because. Even if you feel comfortable that something is going to happen, you don't know, right? I mean, I could sit here and say, well, I would imagine that iOS, you know, is still going to be around five years from now and will still have a pretty hefty uh, portion of the smartphone market, but maybe not. Maybe something is going to change drastically in technology in the next five years that I could never envision. It, you can't make those kind of predictions, especially that far out. If you're going to project what iPhone sales are going to be in 2018, you're, you're smoking something. Tease in. It's going to be teasing yeah, all the way. Teasing, right. Dude. Oh, I'm sorry. You were offering to smoke something? Um, <laughs> you smoking teasing? Dude. That's the Korean best. It's a new um, strain. At any rate, so the watch obviously hasn't had a chance to really show what it can do in terms of sales growth because we haven't hit its first Christmas season yet. The tablet, we don't even know how many it's sold. Do you have an estimate? What's your guess? <laughs> well, that's... Well, see, that's part of the insanity of this, right? Everybody this week was coming out with their projections on what they think that the uh, that the Apple Watch sales were based on what Tim Cook said. The problem is they didn't actually listen to what Tim Cook said. <laughs> if you look at what was said, they said that over the first seven weeks or whatever, um, the Apple Watch outsold the first iPhone and the first iPad. Here's what we know. The first iPad sold 3 million in 90 days. Hmm, and they sold two million somewhere around there, uh, uh, you know, like sixty days or something like that, right? And then so people were saying, "Oh, I think the watch sold one point nine million units." How? But like, did you even listen to what Tim Cook said, or or anybody uh, from the company actually said? They didn't give any hard sales. 
but they specifically said that it outpaced the iPad. And here you are saying that you sold, thought it sold less than two million when we know for a fact that it sold more than two million based on what they said. It's crazy. Well, I mean, but th their numbers of, of averaging watch sales to $500 can't be wrong because we all know everyone is buying the stainless steel version. Again, it's fake numbers built on fake numbers with fake numbers. You, you look at uh, 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 fake numbers for the watch sales combined with fake numbers for the average selling price, and then you come up with fake numbers on the margins, and then you come to a conclusion based on that. And what and what reality does this make any sense, right? There's nothing, there's nothing that's there that's actually scientific other than just the math itself. But it's all made with BS numbers. Yeah, well, I mean, the math itself, it, it can't be... I mean, there's really no way to extrapolate because of the incredibly widespread of uh, models. I mean, you have the uh, the sport model starting, you know, down in the 400s, and then you have, you know, <laughs> the edition at at the you know tens of thousands. How are you going to compensate? How are you going to? What are you going to comp for that? You you have to come up with a starting presumption that says we think the greatest distribution of these was. Yeah, most sport, yeah. most steel, and and yes, that's know, a presumption. You're guessing, yes, you're, you're it's already a presumption, guessing and you can't make averages. I mean, it would be better if there was like an iPhone, like there was uh, three models that were separated by a couple hundred dollars difference, not thousands of dollars. You know, it's it's an, it's kind of impossible to. Well, to, uh, do you think many edition watch models were sold, or do you think that the greatest bulk of that distribution was? steel and aluminum um, there's, no, there's no history to build this on we have no idea yeah. it's a new product category a new product new price points new everything mm -hmm. i mean you can't look at this and say oh well uh it's probably this this or that because nobody knows nobody has any idea except for apple i think but, they you know, just I, pulled, I pulled the numbers here so bloomberg said the average analyst thought that apple sold 1.9 million watches in the quarter but mm. here's the problem they said that it outpaced the ipad and the first ipad uh, sold 2 million units eight weeks after launch. So if you extrapolate the numbers, then at 58 days after launch, the watch would have been at about 2.15 million. And then Tim Cook said sales accelerated in June. So, I mean, you could be as high as 3 million. So how, how can anybody honestly say that they think it sold 1.9 million units in a quarter when Apple said that it didn't sell that few? It's just because, people are being willfully ignorant. Slice says so, that's why. All right. right, yeah. What we're saying is that the largest number of idiots outnumber people who listen to Tim Cook, and therefore, yes. yeah. Okay, is, is that a great surprise that there are a large number of idiots? No, no, it's not a surprise at all. This is the same thing that's been going on for a long time. Apple didn't give any exact specifics on the sales, but they said enough that we can have an idea of where it's at. And it's probably for the quarter somewhere between like two and a half, three million units probably was where it was at. And... We can't say for sure because they're not going to tell us. All right. Let's talk about something else. We want to talk about – we were talking about Apple Watch. Tell me about customer sat. Uh, well, Apple says that it's uh, off the charts, that it's, uh, what, 97% is what they revealed. Right. They said uh, that was higher than people were happy with the original iPhone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, it would seem that early adopters of the Apple Watch are exceedingly happy with the product. And we know that uh, Tim Cook takes customer satisfaction very seriously. He repeatedly mentions it with the iPad, even though the sales have been declining. You know, he says that he thinks people are going to come back um, and they'll buy. It's just a longer upgrade cycle. So I would say, uh, obviously, with a satisfaction rating that high, uh, it bodes well for the future of the Apple Watch for potentially new customers or people upgrading their existing models. 
And the thing about that number, because a lot of people read that that number and also read it wrongly, that number says that of the people that bought the Apple Watch, 97% of those people are completely pleased with it, right? That's yeah. what that means. Okay. There were a ton of people that I was talking with on Twitter that completely misunderstood that, and they were trying to figure out how a number would involve people who had not bought the watch. You know, they were thinking it was 97% of people responded favorably to the watch. No, no. It's of the people that bought the thing, 97% yeah. like people it. People are generally pretty happy with it, and that's been my experience with people that I know that own it and I've talked to. People are generally pretty happy with it. They say it's a pretty good device, and I, I feel pretty much the same way. I mean, um, the price points aside, I don't know how much I could – recommend it to, you know, someone like my parents, you know, at $350, $400. But if somebody's really on the market for a smartwatch and a fitness device, it's a great choice. I've known a bunch of people in San Francisco who wear the watch, who bought the watch day one and, and gave up on it like in two or three weeks because mm. it just, it, it wasn't the Jesus watch they were expecting. Well, and, mm. and what was interesting about this, this customer sat report was that it seemed like people out in the rest of the world really love the thing and it was just the people in south in san francisco and, and in the valley who expected it to be the jesus watch were depressed that it wasn't the second coming that's not surprising right i mean when the ipad was announced it was a giant ipod touch it was a disappointment among amongst tech people well yeah as was the iphone right to a, le to a lesser degree but i mean still yeah i i think that tech enthusiasts are always going to have high expectations because Especially people that are upgrading their phone every year and all that. We all want the next G Wiz features and stuff, and that's just not what Apple does. Nope. Yeah, people should know by now that um, first, the first anything of Apple is not the thing that makes the product so popular or that that lineup so popular. It's it's going to be the the S or it's going to be the second gen. You know, it's going to be it's going to be the follow up after they get all this information. Then they're going to come out with something that fixes everything and adds on the features. And everyone's happy. Well, I, I disagree a little bit. And here's why. It, we used to say when we were talking about old Microsoft that anything with old Microsoft, you had to wait for the third version for them to get it right. With iPhone, the very first version, I don't care how many things you point out were wrong with it. Yes, it didn't do picture messaging. Yes, there were no apps, all of those things. Yes, it was not a great communications device. It was amazing, and I loved it, and I, I was perfectly happy with what it was at the time. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, think I don't that, have to wait for version two for that. Yeah, I, I think that you look at the first iPhone, and that certainly laid the groundwork for everything. And the things that it was missing were... 3G, I think, probably being the biggest. Or and, MMS, you know, or yeah, copy MMS. and paste, or apps, or there, there's a long list of things that we got eventually. Some, some software, some hardware, yeah. I, I think that the Apple Watch is, it reminds me of the iPhone in a lot of ways in that sense. I, I don't think the Apple Watch will ever be as successful as the iPhone. But I, I do think that uh, it reminds me of it a lot, in a lot of ways where you can see where the groundwork is laid in the obvious places that they're going to go with it. You know, obviously, it's lacking. You could compare lacking GPS uh, in this first-gen version to lacking 3G in the first iPhone, right? That's a natural hardware progression. And then software, uh, figuring out what the apps need to be and what's going to work for people, running native apps, fitness apps, that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's all eventually going to come, and some of it's coming as soon as this fall. Mm -hmm. are, are you running 2 on your, or watchOS 2 on your watch? I am not running watchOS 2. Um, I have heard that it's exceptionally buggy. Yeah. Uh, especially as far as Apple betas go. 
So I have held off because I wear my watch every day and I exercise with it. Uh, so I do want to test it out. Um, and I'm hoping to potentially get, uh, you know, some betas of upcoming, uh, fitness apps to test out, uh, and see how those run natively on it. Cause of course right now, if I don't run with my phone, which I don't, um, then I can't use things like RunKeeper and stuff like that. So I'm excited to see how those apps kind of take it in a different direction and see what they do with fitness oriented stuff. You know, I was talking with a fellow yesterday who wrote me from his phone and said, I'm writing this short email. My computer's crashed. I need to write more when I get back on my computer and get it working again. And it's, it's just a coincidence that one of our sponsors today is Backblaze. Backblaze is online backup for your documents, music, photos, videos, and user data. And please go to backblaze.com slash Apple Insider to get a no-risk free two-week trial. Over 150 petabytes of data have been backed up for their customers. Backing up is easy. Restoring data is complicated. That's traditionally the problem, right? It's easy to back up a data, but if you have a backup that you can't restore from, you've accomplished absolutely nothing. Backblaze has restored over 10 billion files. You have online access to your files from anywhere you have an internet connection, and they have iPhone and Android apps for mobile files access. You can restore one file. You can restore all of your files. They have an easy web restore interface and also have USB hard drives available for larger stores. They're founded by ex-Apple engineers, and Backblaze runs natively on Mac and PC, external hard drives included. No add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. They're just $5 a month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled backup. If you're already backing up, if you already have a time machine backup, if you already have a Drobo, if you have some other method, backing up with another method like Backblaze is like investing. It's, it's more diversification. You have multiple backups, so if one happens to fail on you, you've got another backup to go from. So you should really consider, back that Mac up. Get your free trial by going to backblaze.com slash Apple Insider. Back that Mac up? <laughs> That's what they wrote in the copy. All right. <laughs> I like it. And speaking of things that are backing up, the uh, iPhone 6S rumored device, rear case, or back, allegedly features stronger construction. Yeah, this aligns with what has been rumored that they're going to use the same Series 7000 aluminum that's in the Apple Watch. And, and externally, the device is going to look the same as the iPhone 6 that I'm holding in my hot little hand right now. Correct. But internally, it's going to be a different, well, it's going to be a different material for internal and external, but internally, that's probably also going to have a different um, different layout inside to give it that extra structural support. And, and this, is why, uh, this is why when we were talking last week about the new iPod Touch and I was saying that I could see uh, the iPhone 6 components getting squeezed down into an iPod Touch style uh, 4-inch device, uh, I think that Apple doesn't want to have identical looking devices in the lineup at the $200 and $100 price points. So the fact that the 6S is going to look identical to the 6 means that they will probably sunset the 6 this fall. That would be my guess. That seems reasonable. So then you would have a so-called 6C at the $99 price point with the components from the 6 just crammed into a smaller phone. Okay, so you have the iPod Touch, you have a 6C. and A and free iPhone 5S, uh, free on contract. Okay, so so let's, let's do this in order because I want to keep right. it straight. So we have an iPod Touch, we right. have an iPhone 5S... Yes. We have a 6C. Yep. We have a 6S and a 6S Plus. Right. Okay. And the 5S is hanging around because it's free and doesn't have Touch ID or Apple Pay in it. It does have Touch ID. It doesn't have Apple Pay. 
And this is what we've debated before. The 5S before. doesn't have Touch they... ID? They're going to take Touch ID out of that thing? No, it does have Touch ID. Okay. It does have Okay. Yeah. I mean, but it doesn't have Apple Pay. Correct. Yeah. Unless but they did some serious. we debated this before, right? It, would they... Do, how aggressively do they want to push Apple Pay? Um, my vote is for very. <laughs> I know. I, I know that that's your vote. I don't. I don't think so because I, I think they just keep it the same. Okay. So the but but even so, that's a this is still a very transitional product line. If we're talking about Apple Pay and let's say one more cycle after this, the 5S goes away completely, and we have a free 6C, a 6S at a hundred dollars, and then a seven at two hundred dollars. That would be a presumed 2016 lineup. Right. So essentially uh, a year or so away gets us a fully Touch ID, fully secure element, fully Apple Pay lineup. Right. I, I see that happening starting fall 2016. I think the 5S is going to stay the same. Okay. That's just a guess. Well, it's a good speculation. I mean, the the thing that I think about with these transitions, and we saw transitions before, right? We saw the the how quickly can Apple transition away from 30-pin to Lightning. We right. saw and, – and that was a transition that was a little bit harder because it involved third parties and third-party devices and hardware. Right. It was still a very aggressive transition, right? It, it moved very quickly. The only thing that hung around with 30-pin was the uh, the iPod Classic for a while mm-hmm. and the iPad 2, which hung around right. because of education. Right. So moving Touch ID is is a – transition that happens on their own timeline they do it as fast or as slow as they like and i think it's probably one timed well with the amount of banks and 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 shops as they get on board with it and i think apple pay makes for a good upsell too you want apple pay spend a little more um they can kind of take their time rolling out on the product and you can even get an iphone 5s and pair it with an with an apple watch and get apple pay yeah you can Although the question is, does that make sense for the consumer that's got the 5S, and why wouldn't they just go ahead and get the uh, the more expensive phone? Maybe they want the watch, yeah. and a 5S at $450 would be $200 cheaper than a 6S. So you could take that 200 bucks and put it toward a watch. I, I could see some people doing that. Okay. You know, I hadn't let's, really let's thought of it that Let's not forget that 5S is still a great phone. I mean, it's not like it's not like anybody would buy a 5S, and I mean, it's still got the 64-bit processor. Uh, Retina display, Touch ID, good camera, so and and that fine. screen size that you love so much. And it's four I, inches, it's right, Neil? That I, I, screen no, size. No, 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 no. I want the three point five inch <laughs> screen. I want to go back to the small screen. <sighs> if they made an iPhone the size of the iPod Nano, I would be all about it. You know, I remember in two thousand eight when we'd had the first iPhone for a little while. One of the product discussions that I was involved in with uh, one of the third-party resellers that I used to work at, um, not third-party resellers, third-party accessory maker that I used to work at, was the uh, the rumor at the time was that Apple was going to make a mini iPhone. Right. And yeah. we were getting we were getting um, these these hoax devices from China right. that were mini iPhones, and they they you know they were run by. Um, cheesy cell phone OSs that had existed for a while, you know, things that had Java inside them and stuff like that, or or even there was one that was a really terrible version of Android, I think. And they were miniature iPhone-looking things with a miniature home button and everything trying to pretend to be the mini iPhone. And it just took us this number of years to get to the point where we realized Apple always made the mini iPhone. It was just the first version. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one way of looking at it, but, uh, you know... I think that uh, uh, you, you. I mean, you have to think, right? That that Apple toyed with the idea 
in their in their labs. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? I'm sure that somewhere there was some concept for a pretty small phone if they felt like there was a market there for it. But obviously, the market went in an opposite direction. And the market stumbled almost into these larger phones. You got to remember when the big phones first started coming out, it was to put in larger batteries because they were the first ones with the LTE. And the LTE early chips were horrible battery life. And so they went with bigger phones to accommodate that. And then it turned out consumers actually liked bigger phones, and that's why we're at where we are today. Um, and now, you know, nobody's selling phones in the four-inch range except for Apple, basically. Well, early uh, on, early on back in those days, those 2008, 2009, 2010 days, some of the very early Motorola Droid um, and, and other Verizon-branded Droid products were smaller devices. The Moto Droid was actually a, a nice size, but some of the other products, like the HTC Droid that was back then, were tiny they were so small, and they had touchscreens, but you could not type on them, or at least I certainly right. couldn't. We learned that small devices don't work. Well, we were just coming out of that stage of, you know, the StarTac and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we still had that kind of mindset of smaller is better. Yeah, the Razor then, was as thin as you could make it, nice and yeah. tiny. And then enter iPhone with a, with a soft keyboard, and people realize that their fat fingers can no longer... Uh, activate the hitboxes on there. Uh, I precious, remember discussions of precious. of the iPhone, the original iPhone, being too large for jeans pants pockets. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know we we have the the six and the six plus, and they fit perfectly well. No, they don't. Hmm. <laughs> That's I, just because well, we you want the three point five inch no, device. You wear skinny jeans. Come <laughs> yeah. on. You know, uh, thinking about this iPhone Mini. Uh, or iPhone Nano or whatever you want to call it, uh, kind of reminds me now of how long have we been talking about an iPad Pro, a 12-inch iPad, right? 12.9-inch iPad. Has it been two years? Two years, three years? I'm starting to wonder, I mean, I still think it's coming, but part of me wonders if it's just like one of those mythical products that Apple really has no intention of releasing. The thing that existed in the labs and we never saw it. Yeah. And, and, like, you know, they you toyed know, around with it, and it was like, yeah, there's not really a market for this thing. Seven years yeah, from now, a prototype pops up on eBay for ten minutes. and <laughs> The uh, the Apple TV and upgrade is inevitable, right? I mean, they have – it's an established product. Uh, it hasn't been updated in a while. We it's know a hobby. It's a hobby, Neil. But we, we know <laughs> that they're working on negotiations for a TV streaming deal. All this stuff leaked ahead of time. And anytime Apple has to talk to partners, then stuff leaks out. The iPad Pro, they don't have to make any partnerships or really do anything. Um, and we constantly wonder who, who would this be for, what's the market. I could see it being a good laptop replacement if Apple does it right, and I still think it's coming, but I wonder, is it really coming? Well, but that's one of the things that I observed about the the earnings call, is that after looking at the way that devices sell and the, the, the sort of sales cycles for those things, I kind of feel like the the iPad and tablet space, and when I talk about those, they're almost interchangeable, that the iPad is more akin to being a PC cycle or a computer cycle for sales cycles and replacement than the phone cycle. Absolutely. In which case, the iPad Pro as a as a laptop replacement does make sense. You mm. are you are right, sir. I concede. I think I uh, doing well in uh, enterprise. I mean, it, yeah, it would. Yeah. You know. How big is that market, though? I don't know. I mean, Apple could tap into it. It's. Uh, IBM. It's something, yeah, I mean, it's something that they've been toying around with. Maybe they could go wholeheartedly into enterprise like they did with uh, education. I, I think it needs an exceptional keyboard dock um, and, you know, the rumored style of support 
uh, would be a big part of it too. And I could see that appealing in a lot of, I mean, imagine if you had a, uh, iPad pro with NFC in it as it's rumored to have, and it would be an Apple pay receiving thing and you could replace a terminal anywhere, basically. So you've got the most expensive register ever. Well, that'd be one use for it. You're going to kill square register. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, imagine there. Oh God! <laughs> imagine, <laughs> but imagine that uh, you you could have a device like that where it could be used in a d- number of dynamic settings. It could be with a keyboard dock, a, a laptop replacement. It could be a cash register. It could be uh, something you know you're drawing on and doing stuff. You know, for for, for professional style uses like that in a workplace enterprise. I think that's what everybody feels like an iPad Pro would be enterprise, but. Who knows? I mean, it may just be a, a smoke and mirrors. It may be nothing. So have you been using the iOS 9 beta on your iPad? This is my transition here. The, yes. Because we know that, that there are all these cool things for iPad in iOS 9 that would make sense on a supposed iPad Pro. But we have right. them today on your iPad Air 2. Picture in awesome. picture is pretty uh, amazing. Picture in picture, awesome. yeah. the uh, the the slide over, slide over, mm-hmm. the well. keyboard support, mm-hmm. the 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 side by side app use. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why I think a iPad Pro is coming because you see these features being added in there, and it's kind of like, oh, iPad sales are declining, uh, longer upgrade cycle, people are using these more like PCs, and I think Apple kind of got the hint to give it a little more attention and give it more PC-style functionality. And you're seeing it coming now, and it's awesome. Um, yeah, okay, some of it was already on Android and stuff like that, but um, you know, you have the largest uh, app ecosystem on iPad. You have the best designed apps. You have the best hardware, and so now you're getting these features. And I've been testing it for a few weeks now, and it's awesome. I love it. So tell me, Beta 4 was just released. What do you think? Um, it's buggy. Um, install it at your own risk. Um, I have it on my daily phone, but Ooh. it does have its share of issues. Um, so I have it. On, I have the public beta on my iPhone, which is the same as the developer beta four, and then I have developer beta four on my iPad. For some reason, it runs really well on my iPad Air two, and it runs buggy on my iPhone. And it may just be because I use my iPhone more, and I'm noticing. But um, like for example, I installed. Uh, public beta 2 this week and i've been having issues with the keyboard um the keyboard when it works with iMessage, uh kind of gets wonky and stuff so it's a beta don't install it unless you really 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 want to what what's what's your feeling about having public betas because we saw that one of the things that happened this week was that they they turned off apple turned off the ability to submit reviews on itunes the app store for uh for things that when you're submitting from a beta os thank god they did they failed to do it from the mac app store if you're writing from el cap yeah well i mean it doesn't affect them as as much i don't think right i i feel like people are more apt to put a public beta on their phone than they are uh a computer that they use every day i I don't know if it seems more it seems like a more dire situation if your computer crashes than your your phone. Um, Not if you use I, our sponsor Backblaze, apparently. True. I wish I used uh, something like that or made my own backup for my uh, iPhone, which erased itself um, after I installed the developer beta 4, which was great. 
Yeah, just what you wanted was to have things erase themselves. But I, it, I wonder, does it kind of send a message to developers for the Mac App Store that you know they're they're not kept in the same light or, or held with the same regard as the uh, iOS App Store developers? Uh, well, I don't know. I saw it. Uh, I forget who I, I think it might have been. Uh, I mean, Jason Snell or something. I, somebody tweeted out about the Mac App Store being a second-class citizen. In Apple's eyes, and it is true. It, it doesn't get the attention that uh, it, it might. You know, it, it definitely is not as um, updated, and you know, it doesn't have as many features as the iOS version. But then again, I, I, I question how many users there are on the Mac version compared to the iOS version. I mean, we have to remember that iOS market share is ridiculous, and. Mac is also growing, but it's still not anywhere anywhere near um, the number of users of iPhones and iPads and iPods or iPod touches. I, I want to say this. Numbers aside, the Mac App Store is great for the end user. When you get a brand new Mac for the first time, you take it home, mm-hmm. it's configured to allow applications to be installed from the Mac App Store sandboxed, secure, nice. You know that if you go to the Mac App Store that the applications you get there are more than likely going to be safe. They are coming from a reputable source. They aren't going to screw things up. And and on the whole, you can trust them. For developers, it's it's a great thing because you don't have to worry about how you push updates. You don't have and as a user, you don't have to worry about how you're going to get updates. And the the price for developers that they can charge is better than any money they can make on the iOS side of things. So right. it seems to me that this is something that ought to be pushed, that it ought to be taken care of and tended to and curated and and given the love that it really needs. And yeah. it's not. Yeah. I mean, I rarely go on the Mac App Store. I, I usually download my stuff directly from developers' websites because I've found that the things that I want to download are not yet on the, the uh, Mac App Store. So mm-hmm. The uh, review process is either, you know, Right, they're dragging their feet, or you know, they don't—they're understaffed, or you know, sometimes developers just don't even want to bother going through that—that that whole um, step-by-step red tape yeah. process. So, I mean, they, they need to—I think they need to do something. They need to make it—they need to need to make the process more transparent and streamlined for the developer, and then you know, I mean, yeah, hopefully. We'll see some support for that in the future. As an end user, I search for an application through the Mac App Store. I, I search for the thing that I'm, the problem I'm trying to solve, and then I'll look through the apps and find the one that I feel like suits my needs best. And 50-50, I'll buy it through the App Store, or if I'm really thinking about it, I will go to the developer's website and purchase directly from them. And I do that because I would rather give the developer the full price instead of giving Apple the 30% cut. Mm. But I, I do it 50-50 because I like the idea of getting the updates and being able to reinstall directly from the App Store and seeing my purchased list and not having to chase down all these individual websites or manage it, product it, keys it, or any of the other stuff that you have to do when you're buying outside of the App Store. Yeah, I think a big problem, too, is uh, promotional opportunities and upgrade opportunities and stuff like that. A lot of developers, if you already had a previous version of the app, you get the new one at a discount when they release a new one. And there aren't really ways to do that on any app store that Apple has right now. Updates come out and people just feel entitled to get them. And if you want to have new software, 
Um, the app developer has to release a new version and then charge you for it. It's kind of a wonky system. Yeah. It would be, it'd be nice if they could make, like, how about uh, cross-buy on iPhone and Mac? That would be great, right? Mm-hmm. Bundle uh, Pixelmator for Mac and for iPhone. Get a discount if you buy both. Um, you know, that, that would be awesome. Let's have a little bit more. One password uh, across all of these things. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's have a little more fluidity between the platforms. They have that in other areas, right? They're kind of blurring the lines between OS 10 and, uh, and iOS. Let's blur them further and let's blur the lines on the app stores. I guess one step at a time. I'm not, I don't know if it's in there. No, you know when this is going to happen? This is going to happen when Apple decides that they have a major update to Final Cut or something like that coming out. And yeah. th- they want people to upgrade from Final Cut uh, you know, Pro as it is now to whatever the next version is, right? And so then when, it's, when it matters to them is when they'll address the problem. You mean when they nerf Final Cut even more than it is now? <laughs> Yeah. Maybe I mean, well, th- th- I mean, they've been giving software away for free, right? They're not charging for iWork anymore, anything like that. If you buy a new iPhone, so okay. maybe maybe they're going in opposite direction. It's just everything's all the software is going to be free. Could be. I'd still pay for quality product rather than uh, download a free version of a subpar product. I mean, I agree. I think everyone would, most people would uh, prefer that. Mm, method. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> well, that's M- most that people is, are idiots. Yes. Most people want it free. Most people want it cheap. Most people don't they haven't care. seen the light. Maybe maybe it's because they, they haven't tried the cheap, the, fast, the quality, good pick quality two. Kush. Well, I mean, you look at uh, the Apple Insider app, which you can download for free on the iOS App Store, uh, was not compatible with the first few iOS nine betas. And oh, really? Then, I haven't, I didn't yeah, and oh, we, we got reports. We ha- <laughs> now, Did we? And yes, we yes, we got reports. Oh, interesting. People were unhappy with us, which I, is not surprising, but still, people were. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, we had people emailing, 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 and then leaving reviews on the App Store saying, don't bother downloading, it doesn't work on iOS 9. And it's like, this is a problem with a public beta. It's a bunch of people that don't understand that it's for testing. And, you know, that hurt our app. So if you go on there, the reviews are poor because people go on there and they complain and, and they don't like, you know, that, that it doesn't work and they, they feel entitled. They tested it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You've tested it. Thank, Thank you for you. reviewing it. Appreciate we it. Still, we still can't do anything until September. Really. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. It was a step in the right direction to yeah. block the reviews. Well, we talked about how Mikey likes to pay for quality software and is willing to pay for a good product. And I want to talk about another good product that is kindly sponsoring the show for us today. That is Alarm.com. Alarm.com is the leading cloud-based smart home technology provider with over 25 million devices and sensors on their platform, trusted by over 2.3 million subscribers to protect their homes and businesses. Alarm.com technology is more reliable and secure than other systems, and they always have a 100% dedicated cellular connection into your home, so you're not vulnerable to cut lines or a down broadband connection. All Alarm.com connections and accounts are professionally monitored so a real person at a central monitoring station will help get emergency response to your home in case of an emergency. They've got a top-rated mobile app to control your security, thermostat, and video monitoring, lights, locks, and garage door, so you're not bouncing between five or six different apps. And Alarm.com systems are professionally installed or maintained by a trusted local security expert, so it means you'll have time to relax on the weekend. You don't have to fuss with installing the thing. If you're interested in a smart home, sign up for Smart Home Security this month and receive a free smart thermostat. Go to Alarm.com to find your local security dealers and enter promo code APPLE. 
Alarm.com. Safe home, smart living. And we thank them for sponsoring the show today. Kevin Lynch, uh, Kevin Lynch believes in Alarm.com. Did you like that demo? I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I I, it, was really- it, it, it got me. It, <clears throat> it was one of the. Uh, it was one of the new features that got me kind of excited about Apple Watch, or re-excited, re excited, reignited my passion. Seeing him uh, open that garage door, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, having the camera and the garage door, and yeah. the communication with his daughter all at the same time was was pretty slick. It was. It's nice. Almost as slick as that Segway, by the way. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> but you tried out another product that I did wasn't as slick. Oh, are you talking about uh, El Coin? I'm I'm talking about the coin. Yeah. Now I'm a fan of payment products. I I like the idea of innovation and in payment systems and things like this. I love Apple Pay. I love the idea of of all of these things. And you are not a fan of Coin. Well, no, I wasn't initially a fan, but. I mean, um, there's a learning curve to it that I didn't expect. Um, okay, okay. So let's back up a step. What is Coin? Okay, so Coin, if it's it's basically a, a digital credit card, if you will, it's a smart connected credit card. It, it it's the size of a credit card. It's as thin as one, but you can load on up to eight different um, credit, debit, or loyalty cards. How do you select and, one of those eight? Um, well, if you're using just the coin itself, it has a button on it, and it'll uh, a little e-ink display that will show you the last four digits and other pertinent information about the card, and you can cycle through them that way. Um, or you can uh, connect with your phone and select from there, which is also a fairly painless process. So if, if you're using it, that's something you would select before you were in line waiting to pay for something and then you'd have the card ready. Yeah, yeah so it, it's kind of like it's, – it's akin to Apple Pay in that you choose your card. Like if you have multiple cards in, app, in um, Apple Pay's uh, wallet. passbook or wallet as they now call it, uh, you, you select one and then it says ready for, for a touch and in Coin's case it's ready for scan and you just um, – you swipe it with Coin. So they are using the MagStripe technology, and you actually swipe it through the MagStripe reader? Correct. Okay. So why are you down on this thing? Because to me, it sounds like that's cool. It is a really great idea, and especially great when it was first announced two years ago. Um, And I finally got mine recently. Has it been two years? It was 2013, so not quite... Two year, a few months shy of, of a full two years, but it, it's been... So remember, uh, you know, when they were in the development process, they announced that they're delaying the shipping product for uh, a full year as they go through design changes. And um, that's why I, I just recently got mine after pre-ordering it in 2013 when they announced. So it, it's been a while. And, and how is it in actual use? What actually happens when you go to make a transaction? Well, in most cases, um, well, when I first started using it and was loading cards up on my phone, it, it was having trouble, or I, I was having trouble entering um, the swipe uh, process correctly. So it, it takes a certain speed. You, you know, credit cards nowadays, I mean, they're, you can swipe with, with reckless abandon, basically. With coin, you need to swipe it at a certain speed. 
Um, it has to be consistent because of the internal electronics that are dynamically changing the mag stripe. Hmm. So that's the learning curve that I was talking about. So, you know, when I first um, got it and I was trying to load up my cards, I was having problems with uh, one card especially, um, trying to scan it in and sync it over to coin, but which is why I was initially not so pleased with it. Once you got them all in, how did it work? Uh, once I got them all in, um, it works most of the time at the stores now. Uh, when I first started using it, like I said, um, it, it would it would come back with an error or a card not recognized. So even you know after cycling through basically all my cards, each one was not was not being recognized by the uh, point of sale system. So I deduced that it was probably user error on my part. Um, so I tried different, uh, different scanning speeds, you know, swipe speeds and, um, found out that, you know, a good, a good match and it just works now. So I'm, I'm more happy with it than I was previously, but it's still not as easy as Apple pay. Right. And some of the people that were writing about the, uh, the commenting on your review of it say that this thing is terrible and it's obsolete before it began. Why should anyone look at it? Mm. Well, I mean, in my neck of the woods, uh, only we don't really have a lot of support for Apple Pay. Um, we have Whole Foods and you know the big stores like that, but there's not many of them. There's there's not one, you know, down the street from me. Down the street from me is a mom and pop shop who may get Apple Pay, you know, 10 years from now, who knows. Mm -hmm. uh, so for people who live in areas where, or frequent stores that aren't yet up with the latest uh, NFC POS systems, Coin is a good option for now. Now when Chip and Pin um, EMV comes out in September or October, was it? I'm not sure. October. October. Um, you know, coin could become, start to become obsolete, but not immediately because, you know, they have to roll out the hardware, the POS hardware, and stores have to begin, you know, accepting, uh, taking responsibility for that, for that, uh, for that, for those types of systems. Right. Well, the new so, EMV hardware is actually both. It's uh, MagStripe and EMV slot. So right. we're in that of transitional course, period where coin yeah. is going to keep working even after those systems come. Right. Except uh, the risk falls on the, uh, on the merchant at that point, right? When, right. Once if, they you, have the, if you use yeah. MagStripe, the risk assigns to the merchant instead of the, the uh, card issuing service. Yeah. So, I mean, I could, I could see merchants say, you know, no, no swipes. I mean, we do support it, but... Um, I don't know. That may be a part of their merchant agreement where they can't refuse that. I uh, see. Well, also part of their merchant agreement now is that they can't uh, ask you to uh, uh, corroborate your whether you own the card or not by bringing out another ID. But of course, that's that's been for a long time. Yeah, yeah. and of course, every merchant asks for it, and yeah. you have to challenge them on it if you actually intend to. I never sign any of my credit cards, and it's never been an issue. So, right? Do you wow. ever get asked for a driver's license? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah, have you ever told them no? Not usually. Have you ever, have <laughs> no, you ever, I haven't yeah. told them no. But. I, I know a fellow, a good friend of mine, who every time someone – he doesn't sign the card and every time someone asks for it, he uh, he says, you can't ask for that. 
Does he does he, he carry around a slip of paper printed out from he the does, uh, He does not agreement? carry the merchant agreement with him. He doesn't carry uh, the cardholder rules, but he cites them. And they they frown. They go talk to someone else and come back and say, okay, sir, and they, they take care of the transaction. That is a man who really, he, really wants to have a fight. He stands on principle, darn it. <laughs> yeah, he he's is. a principled, he's principled man. So principled. And he's, he's a great guy. He really is. Um, although I have to say there was one time he really ought to have been stopped. He was uh, he has an assistant and he was using the assistant's card at a place instead of his own card by accident. And no one questioned him when he had a name that, that clearly didn't match up with um, his gender or appearance. <laughs> well, I'm getting a, I'm getting a coin sent to me. Um, thanks to Mikey, because I guess they gave him an extra one for ordering so early. Nice, nice. They're they're sending me one. I'm I'm excited to try it because uh, I'm very minimalist in what I carry in my pockets, and I want to get rid of my credit cards. So here, if here. this thing works in the places where I would want to use it, that's awesome. But uh, one of my questions for you, Mikey, about the coin is. Obviously, it's a digital thing and has to have a battery in it, but they make it as thin mm-hmm. as possible. Is it thin enough to fit into, uh, for example, like a machine? Like uh, I live in New yeah, York, it works in it works in ATMs, and it it's it is a credit card, but it just, it just should be noted that it's fragile, so you can't. I mean, if you bend it, you break it. Well, I, I just mean like those machines that actually suck the card in, you know, and hold yeah. it in there. Yeah. And it'll the that. automated It'll teller machines and yeah, your metro machines. Yeah, it, it's as thin as a credit card. And does it so. work with uh, ATM? So, for example, yeah. Yeah. I can get cash out from my ATM. Yeah, if you load in, uh, if you load in your debit card or, whatever, or your ATM card or whatever, right, it should work. Yeah, see, that's so, awesome. I mean, it's it's cool. It, yeah, because cool. I don't think my I don't think my bank is going to support Apple Pay for ATMs anytime soon, right? That doesn't seem like it's yeah, no, in the works. So, I yeah. mean, cards cards aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So. I think people are too easy, too easily writing this product off if it works. But I've read stuff about people having it not work. Yeah, so. it kind of depends on the user. I think. I mean, I, I've also read reviews that say, you know, this thing is you know, uh, a POS, <laughs> the other kind of POS. Right. But right. Um, yeah, I think it's just a user. It's a it's a user issue if it doesn't really work for you. You have to. It's not the most uh, user-friendly device, I'd say. I mean, it, there's a learning curve, like I said. So, mm-hmm. But once you learn how to swipe with it, it really hasn't failed me. But you're talking so, about swiping it when putting in or swiping it when, when paying for something? Yeah, no, swiping it when, when paying for something. See, that's so, a nightmare, though. I mean, because how often do you swipe your own card versus somebody else swiping your card, right? I mean, if I go to a restaurant... And I mm. hand this thing over to somebody, and they go yeah, back they, they to the have, mystery. They yeah, they go back to a mystery room and swipe the card. And meanwhile, they're back there pissed off at the card, and they're swiping it eight thousand times and jamming this thing, and they're going to break it. Yeah. That sounds like that sounds like a terrible product to me. Yeah, and well, it's it's <laughs> not just the restaurant where people swipe yeah. your card, right? The, every time you go up to a point of sale system and you don't swipe it right the first time, the person at the register is more likely than not going to take your card and swipe it for you just because they don't have the patience for you to go ahead and hold up the line. Right. You know, and there are and four ways to get it wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, when I'm at a restaurant, am I going to have to tell the waitress, hold on, let me let me go to where you swipe the card and I'll show you how to swipe it <laughs> so we can get this done. Like, like well, what? Like, and this, <laughs> is, this is what's going to happen with EMV, right? Because when I, I had friends from England come over and took them out to a restaurant. And yeah. at one point, they wanted to pay because I'd been buying meals. It was their turn to pay, whatever. And... 
in the UK, you you present your card. The waitress or waiter, the server brings over a portable right. terminal, and Chip you insert and the EM into the EMV slot right there at the table. The card never leaves your sight, never leaves your presence. And in the U.S. restaurant, they take the card and go off in the back room, and they were they were what what the hell? They stole my card. Where's my card gone? It's out right. of my sight. And well, that's a cultural thing. That's why it's chip and signature, and not chip and pin, because we like signing for our cards here. Even though you could put hieroglyphics in there, yeah, stupid. No, nobody's checking the signature. Nobody cares. You can write anything on there. Yeah, and it was a disastrous mistake that we went for chip and signature instead of chip and pen. So I use Apple Pay a lot, but I have a funny EMV story. Um, I was in Florida and I was at a Walmart, and they have the EMV readers there. They have Injeco. So it, it it rejected the swipe on my card. Uh, because it's a chip card that I had already gotten, right? Hmm. And so I had never used it before. I didn't know how it worked. And so they were like, oh, you put it in this little slot here. So you have to push it in, and then it like locks into place, right? Yeah. And then it's a little, it gives it a little click when you push the card in there, and then it reads the chip. Well, I didn't know that you're just to leave it in there until the transaction's complete. I figure you just pop it in, and then it's as good to go, and then you pop it out, and that's it. So I popped the card in there, and then I popped it out, and it crashed the whole system. Yeah. So people are lined up behind me, and the woman behind the counter doesn't know what the hell's going on. I don't know what the hell's going on because I've never used it before. Right. She's you- trying to ring up the transaction, and everybody behind me just kind of throws her stuff on the ground and says, forget it. I'm not paying for it, and they all left the store. So I'm sure Walmart hates me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so the whole system broke down because I prematurely uh, pulled out my uh, chip card. Well, and you pulled it out because that's what you were taught to do with MagStripe stuff. You insert right. it you and you remove. It and that's it, yeah. But because it's a chip, it needs to be in there so it can boot the chip and read the chip. But what was interesting to no me is one it, knows reject- this. <laughs> it, re- it knew that it was a swipe card, so it rejected the swipe on the on the reader. So what I'm wondering is – if I have a chip card and I replicate the swipe into a coin and I take it to one of those machines, is it going to outright reject the swipe because it's spoofing a chip card? Potentially. That's a very good question. See, I, I, nobody knows how this stuff works, right? So yeah. who's going to spend $100 on a product where you need to learn how to swipe it, uh, you you don't know if it's going to work after October when the, when the switch change takes place and everybody's on the MV machines? I mean – I, I can't see this. I can't see this product being a big success. So, so we've gone from it's really awesome. I want it to catastrophe. No, well, I, I, I want mean, it. I want to try it. I'm excited yeah. to use it. I mean, <laughs> I didn't pay for it. It's just getting mailed to me. So, you know, it why has, not? I mean, I didn't. That those are the reasons why I di- I was kind of down on it at first, and but after using it, it it's convenient for me and will be convenient for the next couple years. I'm assuming until the battery dies, and then right. That'll be that'll be it. I mean, by that time, it might be obsolete. So, is is there I any mean, chance of the credit card companies playing nice with this thing? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't seem like no. it doesn't seem like they they well unless uh, really... one of the companies buys Coin and right. their technology, then uh, I don't really. No, but there is but a I mean, similar com- company. There's a similar thing to Coin that classic. that got bought by Samsung. Yes, remember that, right? Yeah. yeah, and it spoofs, and it, that's crazy technology. They're, they're right. sending it out over magnetics to get to the head reader of the stripe. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty crazy, and, and and that's neat stuff. But um, you know, if you don't if you don't work partnerships with these credit card companies, it's not going to work. Like you can see with Google Wallet versus Apple Pay. Apple went and worked out deals with the credit card companies, played nice with them, let them keep their point systems and all that stuff. They didn't try to change a system that people generally like. 
And so Apple Pay is catching on in a way that Google Wallet never ca caught on. And so now they have Google Pay or Android Pay or whatever the heck they're calling it. And they're doing the exact same thing Apple did because you got to play nice with these credit card companies. They have all the power and people like their points and they like the systems. And you, know, you can say whatever you want about credit card companies, but they got a lot of power and they got a lot of clout. This is a product that it, 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 at first blush seems like it's almost a security issue for me, right? I mean, you're spoofing a credit card. Um, it just it seems like the credit card companies aren't going to want to play nice with this product and they're going to do whatever they can to block it out. And so I would not be surprised if come October you run into systems like I did in, in Walmart where it rejected the swipe. Well, yeah. you, you get it and report back to us because I'd like to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because I haven't actually seen any EMV readers in New York that have rejected it. I guess they've been slower to update here. So um, I'm going to have to go out of my way to find an EMV reader and see how that goes. I don't think I've ever seen one here. Really? Yeah, it was weird. And I, I saw two of them back to back. I went from a Walmart. Uh, it was a Walmart liquor store. And then I went next door to a uh, Firehouse Subs. And both of them had EMV readers. So by the time I went to Firehouse, I knew how to do the thing. And I didn't prematurely remove my card. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I broke the system at Walmart. And everybody just left. Yeah. So here's the, the, the thing, right? The dealer was uh, well, busy on that block. So there are Verifones, and the Verifones are popular with a lot of the smaller merchants. There's also the big Verifone that's the one in Target and the same one that's used in Trader Joe's. The Ingenico that you saw at Walmart is a smaller one. And I don't see that Ingenico much anywhere, basically. We're the, talking about point of sale. We're talking about point of sale pin pads and EMV EOS. readers and mag stripes. And the, the thing is, is that the... A lot of merchants are going to get Apple Pay support unintentionally or or sort of on the backside of things by virtue of upgrading to a point-of-sale system that allows the EMV slot that they have to do. Right. Because the way that Verifone sells these things is they have the model, and the model has they, – they have two basic models of the same thing. And one of them has the NFC chip populated, and the other does not. And for the one that does – most of those work with Apple Pay. Some do not just because whoever's programming the thing simply hasn't flashed it to enable it. Or they've flashed it to disable it in some cases here. Right. But for, for many merchants, if the people selling the, uh, the system to the merchant is at all clued in, and unfortunately many of them are not, you can get NFC working. You can have the thing happen without an issue. I've I've gone into small merchants, mom and pop shops, and been able to Apple Pay once I taught them how to use their point of sale system. This is why I'm excited about Coin because I'm an insane person, and I am the type of person who called and complained to Capital One that their new chip card they send me is an embossed card with raised numbers on it, as opposed to the old card which was embossed. You, I, you I are insane. I am insane because I used to have a metal wallet that could only hold so many cards. And if you had unembossed cards, it could hold twice as many cards because people don't realize those raised numbers make the card twice as thick. And so I called and complained. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to listen to me. But if I can cut down on that extra centimeter of space in my wallet, because now I have a leather wallet, but the numbers on the cards will actually uh, leave an indentation on the leather. So I like, I like the idea of not only cutting down on the cards, but having the thinness and all that. So I'm an insane person and I'm excited about coin. But I don't think it's going to be a successful product. I, I love it in theory, but I hate it in theoretical usage. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll, I'll say I'll see. We'll see how it is when I get my hands on it. But I'm excited to try it. And on that note, this concludes episode 26 of our show, recording on Thursday, July 23rd. We had with us Neil Hughes, managing editor. Thanks for having me, guys. And Mikey. Yes. 
That's that's your cue to say yes. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I know. I thought I'd. Uh, oh, you're you're breaking it up. up with yes. Okay. Yeah. I've been your host, Victor. And if Neil loves coin and his EMV slot locks up and steals his card, we'll let you know about it next time on the Apple Insider Podcast. <laughs>